The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. What could be done if I had no limits at all? So if you take the philosophy we've read about in you know, science fiction, with any amount of time and money, we can, we can solve just about any problem. And I believe that to be true. But we have limited time and limited money, so that scopes us a bit. But when you're inventing, if you open up your mind to, if I had unlimited resources, how would I try to solve this problem? And that will lead you to something that fits inside of your time and money budget. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Mike Rio, who has worked as an engineer and business leader for over 30 years. His strengths uh, are predominantly in the research, development, and operations activities of medical device development, and he is a named inventor on 64 U.S. patents and over 100 uh, patent applications. Mike has held various C-level roles as well as uh, VP and director roles within engineering organizations and currently runs his own consultancy out of California. Mike, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Well, Mike, how did you decide to become an engineer? So it's one of those things definitely where I always knew I wanted to be in engineering or in science. And uh, in high school, when they did this, you know, did this survey to see what you'd be best at with your skills, I came out with mechanical engineer, physicist, or oceanographer. So oceanographer. Interesting. I know it's a little bit of an outlier. (laughs) I think it's because I like scuba diving. But uh, yeah, anyway, it came out that way. So it was pretty clear that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Nice. And did, was it very clear, like the path that you were going to take? Uh, did you understand what, what an engineer was back then? Or did you have to do some research and kind of figure that out? I did. No, it was pretty clear to me. You know, me and the group of friends I had when I was young were all pretty technical type of kids. You know, we, we programmed computers, played with telescopes, did that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was pretty clear it was a technical path. And I knew what engineers were. Uh, having dabbled in software a little bit in junior high and in high school. And so I knew, you know, I knew what the game was, but it seemed to lean more towards electrical and mechanical type of things rather than just pure software. Okay. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty clear what it was. And, and the path to get there, I did a little bit different path than went in the military first and then went to college. And that was, you know, a variety of reasons why, but it, it all worked out. Okay. Any reasons you care to share on the podcast? Uh, well, you know, I have a uh, family history of serving in the military. That was part of it. Part of it was to make college just seamless from a financial standpoint. Mm. Uh, and then also to get a very good technical background uh, in the military was very nice as well. You know, I have a friend who is a dentist and he kind of took the same route where he joined the army and they paid for all of his schooling to become a dentist. And, you know, he served whatever it was, four or five years or something in the army. And it, it was a great option for him because he came out of school with zero debt. And like you said, some some military experience as well. Um, that might be an option that not not everyone realizes is available to them. Did did it work out well for you? Did you, you know, looking back, are you glad that you went that route? Yeah, I am. It, it actually kind of accelerated things for me because I had a very technical job in the military 
And so when I got out, I was able to immediately start working as a technician in the medical device community, uh, doing a variety of things with electronics and so on, um, which there was no time wasted with my bosses. And thank, thanks to them, they got me quickly into the machine shop as well. Nice. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Sounds so like they knew they were doing mechanical skills. Yeah. You know, there was a, there were some nice things in there. You know, in high school, I had drafting classes, so I knew how to draft. It was all paper at the time, <laughs> of course. And so the first company I worked for, they were used, they were still using paper for drafting as well. So, you know, he said, can you, you know, do you know how to draw? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, great, draw your fixture. Uh, so I drew the fixture and I said, here it is. He said, great, I'll go make it. And I said, oh. Oh, okay, great. And so uh, I go back to the machine shop, and I think you and I may have discussed this before. You know, go back there and talk to uh, the machinist and make sure you don't cut your fingers off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've got a couple of days, get it done. You know, so, there's, there's a little bit of way to learn design than taking apart things that are already existing and then making your own parts. Yes. Those two, I think, are, are just hugely important. Absolutely. It brings me back to a uh, time in junior high trying to enhance you know, uh, uh, walkie talkies and make them strong. Oh, nice. And so we were successful at doing that uh, and the contraptions that we came up with to enhance them. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. How did you enhance them? Just like amplifying the, the, the signal and we making it louder. The, like the signal, increase the antenna size. Wow. How cool. <laughs> that must've been so fun for you when you figured it out, right? Like here's oh, this yeah. thing that, that really smart people, these engineers up in the cloud that they, they made, right. And you probably, it was like, I don't know, something so far beyond you. And here you are in high school, you figure it out, you figure out how to amplify the signal and make it stronger. That must've been a really cool experience early on. Oh yeah. We were just messing around. It was junior high and we were just, we didn't know what we were doing and we just started copying things is what we did. We figured out, okay, what, how does this, what are the basic pieces to this and just figured it out. Awesome. So we just, we just pursued things that were interesting to us. And so, you know, out of that group of guys, one's a physicist for the government uh, you know, one is a mathematician, me an engineer and so on. So it all, we just kind of went in the direction of things that interested us. So th this brings up an interesting question, uh, curiosity, right? You and your friends, you explored things that you were curious about that you thought were interesting. Do you think yeah. that curiosity is a talent that can be developed or is it just something that you're innately born with? You either have it or you don't. Um, I think you can most certainly be born with it and you can teach your children having four children. You can teach your children to be curious too. It will have the same degree and effect. Uh, probably not just like we can teach kids how to draw and to paint, but they're not going to be Picasso. Uh, you know, some of it's innate talent. That's really hard to get your hands around. What is, or your arms around, what is it that makes them Picasso? Um, I don't know. Obviously, it's something that's intangible and it's it's a gift. It's a talent. It's something like that. But yeah, you can go to a certain degree. Absolutely. It's just a question of that really amazing ability. I think you're 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 given that talent. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. Uh, is there anything that you've done or even seen done to teach creativity? Got you. Um, what I try to do is stimulate stimulate the thinking of how would you solve this problem or how would you, how would you fix this and just leave it open to people, you know, create the vacuum mm. and, see they, and see what they fill it with. So the vacuum approach, you know, so I, I find that's the best way with my kids, with my teams. Um, I, that's what we do. We do brainstorms where there's no condemnation of things that may be perceived as silly by you, but we're going to present all the ideas 
and see what we come up with. And then we'll pick three and move on uh, to the next step. And that really solicits a lot of great stuff, things you'd never think of because people start building on each other. And if you make the bot, the rule of don't make fun of anything and don't condemn anything, which people want to do, you know, some of the people who are operating at a little higher frequency tend to want to do that kind of thing. And, you know, I have to squish that, you know, no, 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 don't do that. Those are two huge points. Create the vacuum and then no condemnation. I love that. Um, Yeah, it's really important because it squashes. So there's there's extroverts, introverts, of course, and we get into the five, you know, things of personality, blah, blah, blah. But if you allow that to go on, it'll really squash some of the more creative people. Yeah. Uh, Some of the folks that are on the touchy feely side of things and don't have that uh, robustness to hear the condemnation, it'll really squash them. So you don't want that. I have um, weekly one-on-one meetings with my kids where we talk about, <laughs> I know it's so nerdy, but we talk about like, what, what are your goals for the week? What are you trying to accomplish? And at the beginning, my kids, one in particular was just not interested at all, right? And talking about what are your goals? My kids are, are 13, 10, and six. So they're still youngish. Um, and they were just not, uh, my, my oldest was not at all interested in talking about goals. And, um, I, I didn't push them. You know, I said, okay, that's fine. If you don't have any goals, that's okay. So be it. Um, but we're going to talk next week and maybe you'll have something then. And if not, that's okay too. But I left it really kind of open. You know, I didn't try not to push them. And some of this is down to the individual, I think. Um, uh, but over time, you know, eventually he started coming up with things that he wanted to work on and they were not, you know, like life goals, or I, I want to, you know, study this or pursue that activity with the hope of, you know, entering this field eventually in, in a career. It's, it's nothing like that. It, it's, I want to achieve this level of, of success on this video game that I love playing. And, <laughs> you know, even though it's like these silly little things, I, I'm trying to, I try to be really encouraging. I, that's awesome. That's a great idea. I love it. You know, let uh, go for it. And then the next week he comes back and says, yeah, I did. I, you know, I got to that level on the video game. And, okay. What do you want to do this week? So it's, it's a progression for sure. And uh, the goals are still, um, I don't know what you might call kid goals, but he's kind of getting into it now. And I think that's super important, right? Don't, yes. don't like force people into that area. Give them, create the vacuum, like you said. And then, right. and then let them pursue the things that they are interested in. And eventually, you know, they're going to get older and grow up and they're going to become interested in, in things that are, uh, I don't know, required to be a successful adult, however you want to phrase that. Sure, exactly. Yeah. And, and they do. You, you know, I always worried about uh, them hearing everything that we were teaching them. And they do. They hear it. It's remarkable. I've got one out of college now and uh, one in college and uh, two more coming into college. Eventually, they're in high school. And uh, it's remarkable. They actually do hear what you tell them. And having something regular like that uh, is a very strong reinforcement. Well, that's great to hear. I'm still waiting for the day when I realize, ah, they were listening. I'm sure it'll come. And it's nice to hear you say that eventually it does come. (laughs) It's shocking. You'll be shocked. Wow. (laughs) They actually (laughs) listen. It was all worth it. (laughs) All right. Well, let's see. You you have... um, well, you have so much different experience and there are so many different questions I, I want to ask. Uh, I think I'm going to kind of pop out of the direct engineering for just a, a little bit and then we'll come back mm-hmm. to it. But starting off, you have a ton of experience working with equity and acquisition groups. 
whether they be like angel investors or venture capital forms or what you refer to as strategics, which which would be the kind of the industry giants that are looking to acquire smaller companies and, and their technologies. Can you share some of the pros and cons of, of working with each of these kinds of groups? So first off, I'll say, you know, thank you for for that compliment. But I, I wouldn't say I have a ton of experience because I always meet as soon as I hear one of those relative values, I can think of people who, you know, can beat me by, a, by, you know, a lion's share. Um, and working with those groups, my experience has been either in the, you know, the second seat and helping my CEO get through it or in the first seat and talking directly with them, uh, either in a completely technical capacity or in the capacity of a seat as a CEO. Um, and, you know, in regard to medical devices, there's a lot less early stage investment in general than there was, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, it's, it's decreased significantly. So there's not as many what people would say is venture capital involved in that early stage, seed stage and series A investment that there used to be. Why do you um, think that is? I think there's a couple of factors and I've, you know, I've, I solicit this, this same thing from others is what do you think it is in VCs directly, private equity people that I've spoken to people that are in business development groups at large medical device companies, which we call strategics because they make strategic plays on companies, hence the terminology strategic. Um, and what do you think is going on? And one of the reasons, and it usually goes something like this. This is the amalgam of what people say. Usually people say something like, well, we had our market collapse in 2008. Then we had ACA come in, which had some issues associated with it, not to wax political. Some people perceive it as good. Some people perceive it as bad, but it did have an effect on, on funding. And then subsequent events in the market, that being the evolution of beyond the dot-com boom of the early 2000s, and then the evolution of the latest uh, software companies, they see the play as I can either go spend $35 million to get a 510K done in five to seven years or $100 million to get a PMA device done in, let's just say for round numbers, you know, eight to 10 years. Uh, or I can take my $5 million and put it into a software company and see a Nice return in a few years maximum. Hmm, which one should I do? Mm. And so it's pretty straightforward math for them. So it's really hard to it's really hard to hit them across the knuckles and say what the heck. On one hand, because you make economic sense, that's where the market is going. Okay, and then on the other hand, you go, well, what about society and enhanced medical devices? And, you know, I, you often there's a few folks out there that will say things really silly, like, well, all, you know, most of the good stuff's been invented. Oh, my gosh. We could talk about that for hours about what's wrong with that statement but and how it's been made before. But I think even the uh, one of the early folks in the patent office said something silly like that in the early 20th century. I, I, I heard that. <laughs> yeah. I, don't remember, I don't remember the person's name or when they said it, but I remember something like that. Anyway. So, you know, those are, that's kind of the balance of things. You know, it's, it's more advantageous financially right now to go towards technology. I'll just put in a big bucket, software and other versus pure medical device plays. Yes, there are lots of in-betweeners where there's technology and medical device that they're still, still can get funded. Sure. And late stage things 
are still getting funded, but not still not at the same volume. So what people would call, and I know somebody will say, oh, that's not actually that, a, a C or a D round, a pre-commercial round or a commercial round, those are still getting funded. Not as big as they used to be, but you could still go find um, private equity out there for that. You can still find some VCs that will do that sort of thing for you. Uh, but your story has to be wired so tight to get that money. Uh, has to be basically a guarantee. You have to, you've already have, you know, it kind of goes like this. You have to have demonstrated sales already. You've already passed your regulatory hurdles. You have worked through 90% of your reimbursement issues. And it's basically served up on a silver platter of please inject $100 million here. And out comes the other end of whatever your next is going to be. Yeah. You know, and it could be less. It could be, you know, 30 million or whatever your, whatever your market is to get your commercial round going. Um, so, you know, having been a part of a company that had regulatory approval, had customers saying, please give it to me, I will pay for it. Um, and production all worked out and was unable to get to the next step because of reimbursement issues or because of perception issues or whatever. It's a challenging market. Whereas if it was 20 years ago, it would have been a no brainer. Hmm. Would have been a no brainer. And, and I understand why. I mean, I understand why. Does this just come back to the, the phrase that we hear out there sometimes? Hardware is hard. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you getting fired up now. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay, that's a perception thing, right? So hard for who? <laughs> there you go. Hard for so, who? Exactly. You know, so the next natural question is, well, what's going to change it? And it will change eventually. Uh, regulation is obviously... Um, squeezing in areas where it does not need to squeeze and not emphasizing areas where it should. So, you know, that needs to change. And I think that'll take a, a government move with somebody with a lot of vision to understand what that means. And in order for them to get that vision, they need to experience some pain. And so that pain will come in the form of realization that we could have had a lot of technologies to solve a lot of problems already but we're not going to realize them for a long time now because there's nothing funding them. So, you know, there's, there's always going to be somebody, you know, I just reviewed the other day, what's the latest and greatest out there. And I went through the list of things and I don't say what they are. Uh, and it was a little, it was a little like, uh, okay, so what? Uh, it was a lot of me too stuff, stuff that's already been done with a new whistle and bell on it to connect it to the cloud or something like that. Does that provide value? Yeah, sure, it does at some level, but it's not the big things that we should be seeing, like total hip or, you know, s s disc replacements or, you know, infusion pumps or other things that I'm not even getting to, uh, innovations in the uh, structural heart space and so on. There's lots of beautiful things to be done um, that people have thought of or will think of, but there's not the funding for it. We're going from uh, a horse and buggy to a faster horse and buggy, not to a car. Right. Not to a car. Yeah. Well, let me ask you something else. You had, uh, we, we spoke before and you had talked about the difference between a, a uh, product that is financially successful versus one that is uh, human successful. And you kind of alluded to that just uh, previously where you talked right. about uh, right. the software versus the hardware and, and where's the, the human benefit. Do you, do you consider a product that's financially successful, but, but not human successful to overall be a successful product? Wow. So, you know, it's, I, I like to look at things objectively 
and not uh, be ideological as often as I can force myself not to be. So, yeah, there's a degree of success in the financial success, right? So people do well. Money is made by people who are going to go and reinvest it. And potentially one of those ideas would be a human success. Um, so there's that there's that longer term benefit by by developing capital resources, right? Basically taking money out of strategics hands, basically people with a lot of capital and putting it into a lot of other hands so new ideas can be developed, right? There's a huge benefit to that. And that's just as just a quick step back to our last question. That's really what I'm getting at from a philosophical standpoint is let's get as many people investing in as many ideas as possible so that we out of that, out of that labor will come fruit that will be beneficial for everybody. Right. Um, so jumping back now, uh, I think the best, you know, this is where we'll get ideological. I think the best success is when it's human success, right? If you can get human success and financial wall, Hey, everybody wins. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the human success is a big deal. And often those human successes don't become financial successes for a variety of not so great reasons. Um, and having been a part of both, um, you know, the human successes are a big deal, in my opinion, from an engineering perspective, that you are able to provide benefit. The fact that the market and or the entity absorbing the technology doesn't see it that way is something to be considered, but it's not an end-all be-all in the definition of success. So there's more than one kind is, the, is my point. And the consideration for you achieve something that could benefit uh, people is important. Tell me a little bit about, this is along the same vein or a similar vein, products that you have been involved with that are acquired for, you know, ostensibly some uh, amount of money that makes everyone happy but then they don't go anywhere. They're acquired by a strategic, perhaps one of these industry giants. And then the product just gets shelved. Some, some people might not even realize that that happens, but why in the world would a strategic acquire a company and their technology and then just shelve the product? So a couple of reasons, some of them legitimate, some of them people would argue and say, well, that's not, that's not right. Well, you know, people can argue that perspective, but I'll speak just more in general terms of what are the reasons. One reason is, is that the strategic acquires the product having not done diligence properly and learns that it's actually not actually meeting its user needs and intended uses. That's the biggest, one of the biggest ones that happens often. I shouldn't say often that happens a lot and it happens enough where I think some business development folks have said we really need to sharpen our pencils on this whole thing on acquisitions and do it a little differently which also again puts the squeeze on new funds right you start turning that faucet off and all of a sudden now vcs get become aware of that and they start saying hey you know lots of problems with a lot of the new things that have been bought and maybe we should be looking elsewhere because there's just a lot of problems in this space so you know people say well it's regulatory reasons or it's development reasons or tech, pure technology reasons, whatever, someone didn't do their job somewhere along the way and money got wasted on something it shouldn't have been wasted on. So that's one reason. Um, another reason is that the strategic may say, hey, you know, this is actually going to put a pinch on another product line. We didn't realize it until now. And we should probably park this for a while. That's, um, you know, we're, we've got a nice revenue stream here on this product. Uh, this product is going to infringe on that in some 
way that you and I can, you know, discuss a lot about, well, maybe it's a doctor's perception. Maybe it's going to harm the way things take place from a reimbursement standpoint. So don't do that. And that harms the doc, the doctor's practice. Those kinds of factors come into the decision-making. And then I'm sure there are cases where they simply kill a product because they don't want to see it on the market. Now I can't point to anything like that. We've all, you know, read books or articles about things like that, but I'm sure that's a reason as well. Uh, I think the first two are more likely. Uh, Well, before you get to that point where you can, you know, even sell a product to a strategic or, or be acquired, you have to have a product to sell, which means you have to have an engineering team to develop that product. And developing an engineering team is uh, somewhat of uh, an art and maybe some science in there as well. But it's something that not a lot of people have deep experience doing, but you are one of the people that has deep experience building engineering teams. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what, what is the mental checklist that you go through when you're, you're building an engineering team? What, what are some of the things that maybe people do wrong when building an engineering team? What, what are the things that uh, we do right? Right. Uh, so building a team, you know, the first thing is, is, is understanding, well, how much, how big of a team, because you can build a really big team. So how big of a team do I need to address the challenge at hand? And we can talk about how it would have done it, you know, 10, 15 years ago versus how I do it today because conditions have changed. And so I now have to develop teams in a completely different way. You yeah, know, please. I'd love to hear your in the traditional yeah. brick and mortar, In the traditional brick and mortar model, you say, okay, how much, what's our budget? Uh, how fast do we need to go? Which is extremely tied to, which is intimately tied to how much money do we have? You know, if you want us to go really fast, great. We'll hire more people. And we'll get some outside contract help and we'll burn red hot. And then you're telling me when we hit this milestone, you'll be able to raise more money and keep the people who are here, the non-contracted people employed. And so you've got to play that game of, okay, how many people can we keep employed and not make promises to people? And when I say promises, you employ them and there's the assumption that you'll do the best effort you can to keep them employed, assuming that they're performing the job functions, Right. So there's that, there's that tacit understanding, right? And you don't want to violate that. So, you know, you don't go out and hire 10 people when you really have the budget for five and cut the time in half. And that's not cool. So you have to balance that um, as well as balance the CEO's ability to go out and raise more money. So fortunately I've, I've worked for, I've worked in companies and worked for CEOs that have been really good at doing that with rare exception. So that's been, that's been a privilege. Um, so in building that team, the next question you ask, okay, I know how much money, I know how big I'm going to build this group. I need to build 15 engine. I need to get 15 engineers in here. We need to have two groups working on two different, two different areas. Let's say, for example, an implant and an instrument group. And now let's go find those people. And the next thing that you need to do is go look for people that are way better than you. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't know it. I mean, first thing I had to accept is, you know, you don't know everything, man. Um, and you need to find people that are smarter than you can do that better than you, uh, and just take advice from them. So it was, it was a nice learning process over the years to go. I have to step, I have to remove myself from the, however interesting this is from an engineering perspective and allow other people to do it and then just give me updates on things. So go find those A plus people is the bottom line. That's how I say it. Find the A plus people, avoid the B and the C players. Uh, those are for, you know, much larger organizations that can use them in an efficient manner to get regular tasking done. 
for a startup, for when you're building a team from scratch, you need those A-plus players. And when you go find A-plus people, you know, you're going to have a big group of highly tuned people. So get ready <laughs> for what that means. Let me ask another question. If, if you're hiring A-plus people as opposed to, you know, the Bs and the Cs, you're going to be playing, paying A-plus salaries as well. And in your experience, it sounds like what you're saying is paying the higher salaries for A-plus people overall is a better investment. Oh, absolutely. No question. And you'll get pushback from your, you know, your G&A folks all the time. You know, your CEOs and CFOs will push back. Can we find somebody cheaper? Sure. Would you like to take twice as long and have half as half the efficiency? Sure, we can do that. And you're going to end up with actually more money out of pocket long term. <laughs> so you're saying it's not a linear relationship between oh, the, no. the level of person and the salary they're paid. Absolutely not. You find you find an exceptional person who knows how to focus set a target and just drives towards that target like nobody's business, they have a nonlinear response. That's all I can say is they can do things that other people can't do. Um, and they can do it in a very efficient manner and produce other fruit that you had no idea you were going to get. So paying, you know, top dollar for people is worthwhile for people who deserve it. Cause you'll find the people who are, you know, C players and they want top dollar or that they've been paid top dollar. It's a large organization. They expect to continue to get that and then work eight hours a day. You know, that's not going to happen in the start. So um, you want to find those people who are another thing I look for too, is people who are Jack of all trades. Uh, unless I absolutely have to have the, you know, the specialist in a specific area, which is rare in a startup. And you also want to find the people who wrench on their own things at home, regardless of what that is. So if you're, you know, an ME, you're, you're wrenching on your cars or your motorcycle. If you're a double E, you're building cool stuff in Arduino. You are, you know, whatever it is, you're doing those things at home too, because it's your passion. You just can't stop yourself. Um, and that's the kind of people I look for. I don't get too hung up on where you went to school or your GPA. I really don't care about GPA. I found, I have found, I can say in my experience, zero correlation between GPA and performance. None. Zero. Um, I found a ton, 100% correlation between people who wrench at home or program at home and their ability to perform at work. Huge correlation. That's awesome advice. Assuming, assuming some things, some basic things, like you're not living in your, in your parents' basement and you're, you know, you're 19 years old and you haven't had a real job yet. I'm talking about people (laughs) who got, you know, they've general, in general, have gone to school in general, they've been had a professional career and they know how to, how to present themselves and work in a professional environment. Assuming those basic things. Yes. <laughs> I, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. And it, it makes me, um, how do I say this? It, it, it's, it's like there for a plus people that I've come across, there isn't really a distinction between work and personal, right? It's all just life. It's all just, this is what I love to do. Not, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to perform this way at work because it's my job, but then I'm going to go home and I'm, I'm going to do something that's, uh, you know, on an entirely different level as far as performance or quality or whatever people tend to perform the same regardless of where they are and it it doesn't have that much to do with with work life versus personal life it's just life it's just who you are as a person absolutely yeah you can't be uh, a lazy slug at home and then come to work and not be a lazy slug it'll show up sometime 
It'll yeah, show up right. sometime in your work life. So, you know, the people who interview really great and then after a month, they're just, they're awful. You can usually detect that in an interview uh, by picking up on some, just some key things that folks say and that they have on their resume. You can pick up on it pretty quick. Yeah. Um, so in continuing on and building in building the team, those are the basic things that I look for. And then running them through when you build your team, uh, running them through the mill with at least a, at least three or four other folks. So you get perspective and don't hire all one kind of personality type either. You know, that's, that's another thing too, which you know, well, it's really hard to do with engineers. They're all the same. Well, no, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I think there's some folks that are more on the cre- more on the creative side, and there's some folks that are more on the structured organizational side of things. And you want a nice mix of those folks. One of one of your favorite phrases is "fail fast." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know there's a book and everything. I'm being You do not like the phrase "fail fast." Yeah, talk yeah. about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so I've met some great people that say this, and I'm just, oh my gosh, you know, CEOs or colleagues. Uh, that say this, you know, we need to fail fast. And the, the main thing is just psychology for me. Um, if you, if you tell your team fail fast, their minds are going to be focused on failure uh, rather than on success. And so what I would propose is a shift of focus on succeeding at the task. Of course, there's going to be failures. We've all failed. I failed a lot probably more than I've succeeded. I've just had some great successes that kind of pave over the failures. Uh, but uh, you have to have failures to fully color your experience, not saying go out and fail. It's going to come naturally when you're trying to succeed. Um, and don't lament over the failure. Pick yourself up and keep on going. Uh, you know, we can use sports analogies and running analogies as I would, as I often like to do. I'll bore you with them if you'd like. But anyway, so, you know, <laughs> when you fail, pulling yourself out of that pain cave and pushing on up the hill and keep on going uh, is where you get to success. That's how you succeed. Um, and so framing the mind of if I'm starting a race and I just don't want to fail, I just don't want to fail, I just don't want to fail, I guarantee you, you're going to DNF. You're going to fail. You, you are not going to do well. You cannot go into that race with that attitude. Same thing with product design. You cannot go into product design with a fail fast approach. Everybody's mind will be oriented on that. And there'll be excuses made every time there's a failure rather than, hey, we failed. We, this didn't work. Now, we're, now we know that doesn't work. Let's move on and keep on going. So I, I started hearing this, you know, when it came out and people were chirping about it. And I would politely say to colleagues that were saying it in other departments, please stop saying that in front of my team. <laughs> and CEOs, I'd say, you know, excuse me, please don't, please. I know you, I know you're repeating what you've read or heard, but please don't say it to the team. Um, and you know, I would give my, without being too direct and getting too philosophical about how it's important to succeed, just to focus on the goal, focus on the goal, because you know a lot of teams get tired of with the pep talks, especially engineering teams. Everybody's super smart. They've heard it and read it all, you know, just focus on the goal guys and let's keep going. Yeah. When we say fail fast, we, we, we don't really mean go out and fail a bunch, right? It's, right. it's semantics or psychology or whatever. So concentrate on uh, how do, how do we succeed fast? How do we succeed fast? Exactly. And I know that's the underlying philosophy. It's just starting off with the word failure is not a good place to start. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I liken that to, um, uh, for example, if I wanted my kids to, uh, to go to sleep at a reasonable time, instead of telling them, um, don't go to bed late, I would say, please go to bed on time. Right. Exactly. Same, same thing, but you're putting it in a positive spin. Right. Right. If you teach your child how to ride your, how to ride a bike, you're not saying when you fall down, you know, uh, you know, your knee's going to get skinned and it's going to be okay. You know, you say, no, you know, find your balance, balance yourself, put your feet down quickly and you'll find your balance and keep doing that. And eventually your body will learn and you won't have to put your feet down anymore. And, you know, you keep it positive. Yeah. Well, this is a perfect segue into my next question, which is uh, artificial limitations. What, what are the artificial limitations that engineers bring to the table that they need to learn to just discard? Right. Um, it's, it's already been, it's already all been invented um, is one kind of limitation. Um, there's no way that that could be possible. There's another type of limitation and uh, having their blocking off your mind to what could be done if I had no limits at all. So if you take the philosophy we've read about in you know, science fiction lab, with any amount of time and money, we can, we can solve just about any problem. And I believe that to be true. But we have limited time and limited money, so that scopes us a bit. But when you're inventing, if you open up your mind to, if I had unlimited resources, how would I try to solve this problem? And that will lead you to something that fits inside of your time and money budget. Um, it always does. It always does. And so, you know, people come up with some, some wacky ideas sometimes, but those wacky ideas will cause someone else in the group to go, no, wait a minute. What about if we did this? You know, that sounded, that was cool, but, you know, hey, maybe in the next century, let's, but we could do it, we could do this and that would work. So it gets your mind going. And I think, you know, science fiction is one of those things that does the same thing. Uh, you know, we, we fantasize about what it could be like in the future. And that brings about a lot of invention in the present because it stimulates the imagination. And so leaving your mind open to what would it take to solve this problem? How would I go about it? And not limiting yourself to that's already been done. Um, uh, that's already been invented. There's always a workaround. There's always a workaround, a way to innovate, in a non-obvious manner around something that's already there. Including patents. Including patents. There's always a way to legally and ethically invent around those things, come up yeah. with something that's non-obvious that no one ever thought of that beats it. And, and, and approach all your projects, at least I do, approach all my projects that there's some really smart people in a garage somewhere that are doing that to you. So get ready. Yeah, <laughs> keep moving and move quickly because they're going Wait, to invent around you. You told me earlier that time, money, and attitude really count for a lot of success. Can you uh, expand on that just a little bit? Sure. So, um, you know, the attitude of your team, a motivated team with the right mental perspective can achieve just about anything. And having the money there for you to do it in an appropriate amount of time will enable you to do it. So, you know, you have a CEO or a company that says, we're going to fund this project and somebody else 
on the team, usually someone who's in one of my positions would say, okay, we think it's going to take about this much money and about this much time to do it. And then that money gets appropriated to you and you take off running. And the attitude, you know, convincing the team, uh, probably not the right word, showing the team why that's about the right amount of money and about the right amount of time to achieve it and that it's a roadmap to get you to that goal really enables them to achieve the goal. So sharing that kind of information and also and also working with your management, your executive management on, okay, you need to have discretionary funds and we need to build in a buffer. We need to have a real schedule based on experience rather than a best case scenario schedule, which I know some of my clients asked for, some CEOs have asked for. And then when you don't meet the best case scenario, they go, why didn't you meet the schedule? Well, remember nine months ago, you said, give me a best case and life happened you know, force majeure events and, you know, stuff like this happens. You can't control it. Uh, the supplier dries up or supplier, one of their suppliers dries up and it's, instead of eight weeks, it's 12 weeks to get your stuff. Okay. Um, you have to deal with that. So building in a buffer for those kinds of things, building a make sense experience based schedule is the best way to go. It strikes the balance. Uh, and then a budget with some contingency funds or discretionary funds strikes the balance. Um, and having a team framed with this is what we have to work with, let's make it fit inside of here, helps enable everybody. So everybody's fully informed because, you know, at least my mind and a lot of engineers I know, their minds will go, well, what about cost? What about this time? What about this? And let's just take that off the table for you. We got it squared away. It's good. It's And get their buy-in. Get them to buy into, yeah, I believe that too. Good. Great. Now, now that emotional state can come down, the anxiety of what's going to happen, that comes down. And our minds are free to think about achieving the goal. So I think that all helps. So, you know, the, the old school stuff, just keep them in the dark and tell them to go in their office and, you know, come out with something on a piece of paper or on the, you know, come out with something in CAD. It doesn't work as well. It reduces efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Reduces efficiency. Can you share any examples that you have about projects that were, you know, quote unquote, impossible that, that your team ended up solving? And, and how they were able to do so, you know, uh, how do you develop the tools to solve impossible projects? Yeah, that is 100% attitude, 100% attitude. So um, I, I, won't, I won't say the name specifically, but for example, we had a project where we had to, we had to create a coding on a specific device. And the person who invented this device was a, a fairly well-known individual. And that individual flat out said, you cannot create a coding on this such that you won't affect the other parameters of functionality and achieve your direct specification. Can't be done. Okay, fine. Uh, The other engineer I was working with, he and I both said on the plane back from that meeting, we're going to totally blow that off. And not (laughs) And we think we can. Here's a couple of ideas that we think we could try that he is not nowhere in the intellectual property. Clearly, he doesn't understand that stuff, even though he's brilliant in his specific field. Uh, And there's a good example of somebody limiting themselves. Man's far smarter than I am. Uh, Brilliant engineer and scientist. uh, And just limited himself that can't be done because he had never experienced anything outside of that one field or cared to ask anybody outside of that one field. He knew very little about putting coatings on said object and 
knew enough to be dangerous to give that opinion. Hmm. So what we chose to do is, well, we don't know much about it either. So why don't we go ask some people who are really smart? Cause we did talk to that one guy who said, try this or that. So let's go talk to him again and a few others. And so we did. So we went and talked to some coding experts and um, we went and talked to the guys that are, you know, the nitty gritty in the, it, that are really in it uh, with their sleeves rolled up uh, and talked to them. And guess what? We came back with a process that achieved everything. Uh, cause we just went and asked people, well, what could you do to solve this? Because we know there's a lot smarter people out there than us. So let's just go ask them the right questions and, and see what we can put together and solve the problem and got some nice IP out of it. And it did worked. you send it back to the guy originally? Cause it just would have been insulting. So this was, was the part you, said you said you can't tell, done, right? What's that? This is the part you said can't be done, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's some people you can't come back to that, you know, and tell them, oh, by the way, we did it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's some folks I, that just won't take that. Is that uh, the mark of a great leader, or at least one of them, to be able to see these artificial limitations and say, mm, no, we're, we're not going to buy into that reality. We're going to make our own reality that does not include this limitation. Well, if you look at some of the major, some of the big companies around, uh, either historic or current today, y- you look at the people at the helm, and a lot of them think that way. Um, that we're just not going to get limited by this. We're going to find a way around it. Uh, we're going to open up our mind to the possibility that it can be done. We just haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you look back in history at some, where there's some great breaking points or some great turning points in technology and so on, where it can, where the leadership was, you're going to go do this and you're going to figure it out. Uh, lots of good examples of that. that Steve Jobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of cliche, right? He's been talked about so many times, but uh, was that phrase? I can't remember. It's like this his his reality distortion field or something that that people would talk about. Right. Yeah. It's all. It's all. It's all. It is one hundred percent starts in your mind with your attitude and your perspective on things. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, let me ask you just one more question, uh, and and then I'll let you go. Um, Engineering mentoring. I think it's such an important thing and some companies have really great programs for mentoring. Uh, I interviewed someone from Gore recently and they have a really strong mentorship program internally mm-hmm. and, and other companies don't have much in the way of mentoring. How do you think engineering mentoring should work? And, and are there any specific, um, I don't know, guidelines or, or, or frameworks uh, in which we should think about that? Yeah, the way the way it should work is that uh, junior engineers should start coming into companies while they're in college and they should be put paired with or more than one engineer or just an engineer, whatever works for the company uh, to begin training them on how to look at things the right way, uh, how to apply what they know. Uh, That should be done at the internship level. And then as soon as they join the company. Uh, join a company, it should be done as well. And yeah, it, it's absolutely important. It will accelerate everything industry-wide across the industries by having that sort of mentorship go on. I mean, that's how I was treated uh, when I came into a company for the first time. Uh, and I appreciate it. I mean, that's how, that's the military model. At least that was the Navy's model for the particular group I was in. That was the model. You, you're brought in and you're effective. They had different terminology for it, but you're effectively mentored and it accelerates the learning curve because you have that one-on-one uh, and it, it gets you along a lot faster 
rather than, oh, just throw them in the deep end, see what happens. Um, and, you know, the good ones will succeed and the bad ones won't. Eh, okay, well, that speaks to your hiring practice, but <laughs> assuming that everyone's equal, you're going to create a lot of inefficiency doing it that way. So mentoring is very important. How would I approach it? Um, I would pair them uh, with the right personality fit. You know, know your group. You know, you've got to know your engineers and pair that pair that junior engineer with the right with the right person to develop them, and uh, you will get a lot of good things out of it. I can think of a couple of engineers that I worked with. Um, I wouldn't say it was a direct mentorship relationship, but it was a boss you know boss employee type of relationship, and so by virtue of that, they got mentored. Uh, that worked really well for them uh, and, and worked really well for me downstream later on being able to hire them again uh, and then being this, you know, being great at what they do. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I, feel, I feel like maybe, maybe a round two, if you would agree to it, might be in order because there are a lot of other things I, I want to talk to you about and um, we're, we're getting close to time here. So, um, uh, the last thing maybe is, is, is there any, uh, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't yet that, that you feel like really needs to be said before we end this, this episode? No, I think you covered some really, really good things that, you know, don't get talked about very often. Um, and I know you and I picked up on this on a preliminary conversation. Uh, so for now, you've really done a great job. Thank you for asking those questions. Um, and I'd be happy to do a round two. This is fun. Awesome. This stuff. Yeah. I <laughs> love that as well. Yeah. Well, um, how can people get a hold of you, Mike? Sure, sure. Um, so you can get a hold of me through my webpage, which is mlreoconsulting.com, um, or you can just email me at the same uh, same address, which is mike at mlreoconsulting.com. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Um, uh, very, very grateful that you've been uh, willing to spend some time and share your knowledge. This has been excellent and uh, I'm lo- looking forward to round two. Yeah, it's been good. Thank you very much. I'm glad you have this platform and uh, that you're doing this podcast. Thank you. I'm Aaron Monker, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.